All right, this morning is September 12th, 2004. Our message this morning is called The Three Chiefs. And when I say chiefs, you tend to think of American Indian chiefs. <laughs> when I was in Israel, one of the things that they went through great lengths to explain was land for peace. The Oslo Accords in Israel basically were a system by which Israel would give up its land to people that were terrorists within the land for the purpose of achieving peace. And there was this little cartoon characterization that I thought was funny, and it had uh, an Indian chieftain in it. And next to that had uh, an Israeli prime minister, and next to that had Bill Clinton. And the Indian caption under his mouth said, don't worry, I'll explain land for peace to you. <laughs> and that's, that's about how it worked for Israel too. We're going to start off in Matthew 11 this morning. There are going to be three major attributes of these three chiefs that we're going to talk about this morning. And the goal here is the, the, David's rise to power in, in the Old Testament was one that was anointed by God. It was called from the time he was a child. But God had to put men in David's life that would help him rise to power because it was God's will. You know, I've heard it said a million ways. One of the funnier ones was, if God orders it, he pays for it, you know? And they were talking about money. I'm talking about getting spiritual things done. If God's called something, then he'll provide the pieces along the way. He won't call the church to be started without providing a pastor. In, in the church, there are appointed apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. He will provide those things as they're needed to be a healthy, fully functioning church. That's what happens. Well, in David's life, there were these mighty fighting men, some 37 in all. And when God called David to a battle, he also called these men to support David in that battle. The kingdom of God is no different. We have a leader that we follow. There are battles that are appointed that must be won for the, the plan to unfold the way that it is. And he drafts people by his spirit to fulfill those roles. In Matthew 11, we see a statement about John the Baptist. And uh, we're going to pick up I guess around verse 7. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? And by the way, Jesus' words are dripping with sarcasm. There. A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in the king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now, those of you that are mathematically inclined, it's possible to have something that is equal to, but not greater than. He's not saying John the Baptist is the greatest guy that ever uh, walk the face of the earth, that would make some of his other statements inaccurate. What he's saying is everybody born of a woman, and that's a nice way to say everyone because everybody's been born of a woman. You can't be born of a man. Everybody born of a woman, nobody in all of humanity is greater than John. Yet he who is at least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. All, for all of the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is 
the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. When you think about John the Baptist, this guy is somebody who nobody was ever greater than. I mean, that's, that's pretty powerful. That means he's right up there with the greatest people you can ever think of in the kingdom of God, right? Tell me a miracle that he did. Name one. You can't. Well, surely it's because he served God for 50, 60 years like Paul. He didn't. Well, you know what? It must be then because he was finely dressed. He wasn't. It must be because he was immensely popular and handsome. He wasn't. So what on earth made John such a powerful guy? Well, he was sent with one message. He's supposed to introduce the world to Jesus. So are you. I've often in the past said we don't have John the Baptist's ministry because John the Baptist really preached a ministry of, of, of uh, harsh evangelism for the purpose of getting people to see their sin and repent. When I've said that in the past, it was from the attitude of my heart that we need to present the whole answer, not just repent. Does that make sense? Because there are people out there yelling, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. John the Baptist didn't do that. He told people the axe is at the root. Judgment's coming. And you need to turn to the one whose sandals I'm not fit to tie. You need to find him. That, that was his message. And his baptism was a baptism of repentance. But he earned the distinction of nobody born of a woman is greater than him because he prepared the way for Jesus. When you think of John, do you think of somebody who sat in on the council of God? Well, yeah. He spent time in the desert. Uh, he was called by the Spirit to do what he did. From the time he first met Jesus, when did John the Baptist first meet Jesus? That's a bit of a trick question. When he was in the womb. Six, six, six months in the womb. The baby leapt in his mother's womb. From the moment he came into contact with Jesus, he was responsive to the voice of God. Do you think that he saw God as his helper? Yeah. How else can you face down a king like Herod? Do you think he was willing to lay down his life unto death? Well, yeah. So John the Baptist is a New Testament example. I mean, he lost his head, so of course he's willing to lay down his life. He's a New Testament example of what we're going to study in the Old Testament. And the whole goal here being God has called this ministry to certain things. We've talked about them a lot. And we'll continue to talk about them a lot. As we do that, he has to also equip us as a ministry to achieve those things. When he called me and when he called Matthew, and we called our wives and our family. That wasn't all there is to this ministry. Today, the people that are here are called by God, but it's not all that are called by God to be here. There are roles that have to be fulfilled, so we're going to look at some of that. But just a note before we get there. Do you think somebody had to tell John the Baptist he was an evangelist? No. Or a prophet? No. no. Do you think he woke up each day and said, how could I be a better prophet? You know, what... What are the marks of a prophet that I should do? Well, maybe I should go dress like Elijah. Maybe I don't, think Eli, I don't think that John the Baptist did that. I think it simply was who he was. So when we talk about these characteristics and these attributes, I'm not telling you, here are the seven steps to be a more powerful presenter or here are the five steps to make people like you, or whatever all the motivational speakers are doing out there, I'm telling you the things that the people in the kingdom should be. You don't have to strive to be these. This, this is who you are if you're in the kingdom. By the same token, when we're talking about the offices 
in the Bible. Apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, and evangelists. You don't strive to become one of those. You either are that or you're not that, and it's evident in what you find yourself doing. You don't say, well, I would like to be a prophet, so I'm going to go prophesy. I would like to be a pastor, so I'm going to find some people and try to lead them. It doesn't work that way. You're called by God, and it is there, or you're not. That, that's, that's how that works. But we're going to talk about the things that everybody, everybody in the kingdom is called to do. And we've done this kind of stuff a lot. One of the key scriptures that I wanted you to get from Matthew 11 before we move on is that the kingdom has been forcefully advanced from the days of John the Baptist till now. The kingdom is advanced, but it's advanced by force. The principalities that have been given rule on the earth because uh, of sin and because Adam fell, they don't give this stuff up willingly. You know, when you want to do something for God, you can count on it being resisted. If it's not resisted, you need to look. You need to get ready for the ambush. Something's wrong. You know, it, Matt, what was that play you used to do in football where all of the uh, a screen? You know, all the linemen, you know, <laughs> start to run downfield. You know, it, it's a, you, if you don't see resistance, something's wrong. So turn to Ephesians 4. And after, after this, we're going to get in the Old Testament and look at the three chiefs. There are times when I'm preparing, I'm tempted to think about the best way to present things and... Sometimes there's, there's godly wisdom in that, and sometimes it is important. You, know, you don't want to get up here and just bore people to death. But I'm often reminded, Eric, you're not called to preach because of talents that you have. You're not called to preach because of the way that you're going to present a message. You're called to preach because that's who you are. So when I step up here, I just have to be who I am. I don't need to imitate anybody. I don't need to... Uh, try to do things differently than I might otherwise do them. It's just, it's who I am. And people will either be drawn to that because God's called them, or they're not. That brings a great deal of freedom. You don't have performance anxiety when that's the case, because you're not rightly judged by anybody except people that have the Spirit of God. And if He's called you to what He's called you to, and has called them to what you're doing, you'll all know it. Okay, in Ephesians 4, verse 22, you see these words. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. In all of my talking about be who you are and your calling is what you find yourself doing, there's one clarification that you need to have. That's that there is an old part of you, a sinful nature, that has got to die. And its acts are obvious. They're in Galatians. You can read them. It's anything that is anti the Spirit of Christ. You have been taught with this new way of life to be remolded into the image of Christ. Well, would it surprise you then to find that example of, of people being molded into the image of their leader in the Old Testament? See, everything that the New Testament opens up and reveals to us just plainly is, is also written in the Old Testament. You just have to look for it because they taught them through everyday things. The creation itself gave witness of God. So turn to First Chronicles chapter 11. 
In 1 Chronicles chapter 11, you see... Actually, we're going to turn to the 10th chapter, but the paragraph before 11. What we have is we have the time period where David is becoming king over Hebron being described here. Uh, Saul has died, and we're going to read about that. David is anointed king in Hebron, and seven years later, he's anointed king in Jerusalem. But there are some important things that happen in the hearts of the people to accept David as their king. And it's the same thing that happens in the hearts of Christians when we accept Jesus as our king. It's an attitude that has to happen. And then immediately after that description comes the description of David's mighty fighting men, how he got to be king. And we're going to read about those too. So starting in 1 Chronicles 10, verse 13, it says, Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance and did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. Saul here is your old self, and he needs to die because he was never faithful to the Lord. The new self that you put on is the one that is anointed by God to be obedient to God. Here's the chief difference between Saul and David when you boil all of their kingships down to one principle. Saul was scared of men, and David was not. Saul was fearful of how people would react and what they would do. David was not. David would rebuke an entire crowd of people and say, who is this Philistine to stand against God and his armies while Saul was quaking with fear? David would wait on God when God wanted him to wait. Saul wouldn't. He, judged. he, he was like our political leaders that make their decisions based on the opinion polls. He took a census of his army he looked around to see how they were reacting and decided he couldn't wait for Samuel. He needed to do the sacrifice himself. Because of these principles, Saul can't reign. God won't honor it. You have to have David reign in your life. All of us have made that decision. It's what we read about in Ephesians 4. Now verse 1 of chapter 11. All Israel came together to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, even while Saul was king, you were... One you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord your God said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. Here's what I want you to get out of that before we look at the mighty fighting men. All of us one time had Saul ruling in our life. This is the prince of the power of the air in which Ephesians says his spirit dwelt in us because we were disobedient as he's disobedient. But we've rejected Saul, the prince of the power of the air, as our ruler, and we have become one with David. If you're a Christian, you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're a part of the body of Christ. Like the people of Israel responded to David, we are your flesh and blood. We are the flesh and blood, the family, the brotherhood of believers. We, in Jesus, is our elder brother. Now, because David had to rise to power, it was called by God, because he needed to be accepted by the people as flesh and blood and then be one with him in battle, God had to give him special men who he anointed in battle, who he caused to triumph where there looked like there was no possibility of triumph. Their names are all special. Their names all mean special things. Their exploits were all special and they all meant special things and it's for one purpose, to teach the body of Christ how to unite around Jesus until we see Him King over all things. Now, right now, it's declared to be. We know that it's true, but you can't walk down to the head of the UN 
and have all men recognize it. It's just not that way. But He's anointing special people that will go out, forcefully advance His kingdom until the entire earth is under one man's control and that man is Jesus. Does that make sense? That same model works in every region of, of His kingdom, all the way down to the local church. You need to unite behind your leader's vision to forcefully advance the kingdom. You need to be anointed for special exploits to help advance that vision. It's the same principle everywhere. From Chronicles, which talk, and you should read Chronicles 11 sometimes. It tells you all about the mighty man. We're going to turn to 2 Samuel 23. This is where all of our text is going to come from this morning. This also will tell us about the mighty man. But it puts them in a little different order and it's just easier to cover here. In 2 Samuel 23, verse 8, it says, These are the names of David's mighty men. Josheb Bashabeth, a Tekomite, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Now guys, among the mighty men, and we say there's 30 because the Bible says there's 30, but it also says there's 37 and there's three that are chief and... It gets confusing. It's one reason we're reading it out of this chapter and not the other. This is less confusing. What it amounts to is there were 30 men that were a special regiment. Then there were three leaders. Then there was one man who led those three leaders. And then there were two others that were included in the midst but were never a part of the original 30. And then there's a couple that aren't named and nobody knows why. So, but they're included in the total number. Go figure. The very first guy is the chief among the three, Josheb Bashabeth. We're going to call him Josheb from here on out. He killed 800 men in one encounter. 800. You know, I often wonder why would God record something like that in the Bible? You know, you usually think if one man kills 800 men, that's a bad thing, right? Unless it happens to be, you know, a World War II hero or something like that. This guy embodies something that every Christian has to have. And this will be the first thing that you'll write down if you write down this this morning. He looked at a, a task that seems impossible and said, nothing's impossible. Christians, men who are anointed for battle by God, will look at the impossible and believe that they can do it because God is with them. Do you know what his name means? Anybody have a guess? This would be interesting. Josheb, and his name in other places is Joshabim. It's, it's several different variations. All of them mean one thing. I sit in the council. Do you know why this guy could look at an impossible situation, one man facing 800, and say, I can take them all? Because he sat in the council of God, and God said, I want you to take that land. So the one man could de defeat 800 men. He struck him down with a spear. I guarantee you, if you could go back in history and look at this guy, he was an, of an average build and an average guy because it wouldn't be a miracle if he was Goliath. God takes regular people and does extraordinary things with them. In the book of John, it says he took six ordinary uh, stone water jars and he then prayed over them and turned it into wine. God takes the ordinary and does extraordinary things. That's why He chose us. We're ordinary people. If you're going to be like one of the mighty men that God calls, if you aspire to be somebody in the kingdom, you don't do it by outward show. 
You do it by one spiritual principle. I know that I sit in the counsel of God so when He tells me something, nothing is impossible for me. That needs to be an attitude of your heart that never goes away. If your computer crashes, you need to go, (laughs) which happened this weekend. God's called me to this. I bought the computer because He told me to. I'm doing what He said to do with it. There is a way to fix this. And if it looks like there's not, He's going to show me how to do it because nothing is impossible for me. Y'all hearing that? Y'all want to say it with me? Nothing is impossible for me. One of the old timers that preaches, and I loved him when he was only 50 and 60, and now that he's in his 70s, I don't know what to think of some of his messages, but his life conveys one concept. Nothing is impossible with God. And that's the emphasis of all of his books, his preaching and teaching ministry, and it's, it's awesome. With that Josheb in mind, who said, no task is impossible for me and killed 800 men, look at Luke 137. Well, in Bible times, Cass, something to just... Sometime we'll look at all the armor in the Bible because we study it from Ephesians sometimes, Ephesians 6, and that's Roman armor. And that's what Paul saw in his day, so it's what he taught about. But actually, the spear is a more effective weapon than the sword, and here's why. It's longer, and so you could kill somebody from a distance with less risk to yourself. So it was of strategic advantage. Men started off with things like knives, they progressed to things like swords, then spears, then archery. Okay, So this was a superior weapon, and the reason that I bring that up is because later we're going to see one guy go down into a pit with a lion uh, and kill a lion and a bear and also a seven-and-a-half-foot-tall Egyptian on a snowy day. And the reason that it says that it was particularly special, one man killing another, not that he's seven-and-a-half-foot-tall, but that he had a spear and God's guy only had a club. So the guy was bigger, he was stronger, he was all of those things, and our guy had a little club, and their guy had a big long spear that he could poke him with any time. No, no, no. They, and Goliath had one that the head of it weighed 120 pounds. Uh, y'all in Luke 137? Somebody read that. For nothing is impossible with God. What was this spoken about? Look at the context. How John the Baptist got born, huh? See, John the Baptist's conception looked impossible, but nothing is impossible with God. So John the Baptist was raised in a house where they believed nothing was impossible with God, and consequently, for him, nothing was impossible with God. We're going to raise our children that way. That makes sense? After Luke 137, we're going to turn to Mark 9.23. I've preached on this quite a few times. It's one of my favorite uh, scriptures. And I know I'm running this first point in the ground. I mean to. I mean, I absolutely... If you can't walk away with with nothing is impossible with God, then I've done a poor job. You all remember in the uh, 2000 presidential election, uh, some of Gore's speeches, how many times he called uh, President Bush's idea to privatize the Social Security system a risky tax scheme? Or a, a risky scheme. He must have said that a thousand times. They call that being on task when you're speaking because if somebody came away with nothing else, they wanted, he wanted them to realize that what he thought President Bush was doing was a risky scheme so that every time they heard him mention it, those words came back to mind. 
Well, that is a terrible carnal example for exactly what I hope to do, which is every time you encounter any task, I want the words to come back to you, nothing's impossible with God. Look what happened in chapter 9 of Mark, and I'm in Matthew. In Mark 9, now when I say nothing's impossible, I'm not saying it requires no effort. You know, between Friday and Saturday, I didn't sleep because it requires some effort to, to do the things that God calls you to do. I mean, I'm not saying there'll never be an all-nighter or that you don't have to really endure for something. You really do. But the bottom line is you prevail. In chapter 9 of Mark, we see a boy who is uh, afflicted by an evil spirit. I think it's Mark 9. Yeah, here we go. I was hiding in plain sight. You see a boy who's afflicted with an evil spirit. The disciples try to cast him out, and they can't. They give up. And listen how Jesus handles this. Because the disciples gave up, the guy who brought the little boy to, to them is now concerned, and he's not sure that this is going to work. So Jesus walks up in verse 21. Jesus asks, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Look at Jesus. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. The disciples' failure caused the Father to wonder if Jesus really could do it. And Jesus responds with, if you can? Hey, buddy, I am the ultimate. Everything's possible for him who believes. What I want you to understand is just because others have tried and failed doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means that they didn't hang in there long enough. The fact that other people have tried and failed to start a church here means nothing to us. You just have to believe that God called you here and everything is possible for him who believes. Do we have to read the rest of the story or will you believe me that Jesus cast out the demon? I think you can believe that, right? Why would you put the uh, disciples' failure in there. Why would Mark write this down? These guys were his friends. They were most of them living at the time he's writing this. Why would you write about your friend's failure? So that we don't make that mistake. They suffered disgrace and humiliation so that you would learn to get it right. Don't give up. That's what was wrong here. Other people say, well, you have to pray, you have to fast, all these things because Jesus mentioned that. No, you just have to not give up. And it helps if you've been praying and fasting to be of the right mind frame because like Jasheb, you have to sit in on the counsel of God if you're going to fight and win. Nothing's impossible for him who believes. Back to Second Samuel 23. We'll read about the second guy. You might just leave a finger in Second Samuel 23 or a bookmark or whatever you have. We don't have bulletins or you can put it there. These are the names of David's mighty fighting men. Josheb, a Tekamite, a chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he had killed in one encounter. Next time you're praying and you feel intimidated, you want a job and you're thinking that you don't have the skills for it, you want, you're lonely, you want a spout, whatever it may be, you can look right at the devil, figuratively speaking, and say, you can send your 800 best, buddy and I will kill them all because I sit in on the counsel of God. And you know what? It wouldn't have mattered if there were a thousand. It wouldn't have mattered if there were ten thousand. 
thousand can fall at your left and ten thousand at your right, but a plague, pestilence will not come near you. Why? Because you're in the shadow of the Almighty. Isn't that what Psalm 91 teaches us? The Scripture conveys this point over and over and over. You should feel bulletproof and invincible as long as you are in the counsel of God. That's the key to the whole thing. It's when you stray outside of God's counsel that you need to be worried. It's not like it doesn't come real close. You can tell there's a distance. You got it. It's all around you, but there's a, something. You got it. And, and it, it may mark you. Uh, you know, it didn't say that this guy didn't come out with a broken finger. You know, I mean, we're not promising that uh, you don't suffer in the kingdom. You most certainly do. And you know what? Paul said, hey, don't give me any trouble, buddy. I bear on my body the marks of Christ. He called them the marks of Christ. His battle wounds for the kingdom, he called the marks of Christ. They were a distinction of honor because he got the chance to suffer for Jesus. You know? Next time you're doing something, building something for, for God, you're going to help somebody do something for God, and you're working and you cut your finger or something, just look at it and say, man, that is a mark of Christ. You know, be excited. Treat it as honor. The next guy says next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodi, the Ahuite. As one of the three mighty men, he was with David when he taunted the Philistines and gathered it past Amim for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated. Everybody else is running. But he stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. The first guy sits in on the counsel of God, so he knows everything's possible for me. The second guy, he doesn't sit in on... I mean, he does, but that's not what his name means. His name means something else. He stands, and when everybody else runs, when everybody else retreats, he stands his ground. He clings to the Word of God that is his sword until his hand is so tired it cramps and freezes, freezes around the sword. And so God gives him victory. The first thing is the guy who sits in on the council says, Wow, nothing's impossible. The second thing is Eleazar. Eleazar is a popular name in Israel. Can you think of another Eleazar? Chief steward in Abraham's household went out to get the bride. You remember that? You know what his name means? God is my help or God is help. The first guy sat in on the council of God so he knew this isn't impossible. The second guy faced the impossible just like the first. Everybody else ran, but he said, I won't retreat. God's here with me. God's my help. And so when everybody else would have quit, thrown down their sword and ran, his hand just froze to it. He would not give up. See, all of these guys had a tenacious spirit. All of these guys were fearless because they weren't of Saul's regiment. They were of David's. Fear is of the enemy. You need to know that. Fear is an enemy of your faith. It will conquer it and defeat it if you dwell in it. There are natural fears that are not. If you climb up on the very top of a building because you have to paint it and you're standing on the edge and uh, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up when you get too close to the edge, that's wisdom for you. It's to teach you. Don't, don't do things that are going to endanger your body. But you know what? When you sit in on the counsel of God and you know God's your help, if He tells you to, you don't have to be scared. See, there's a difference between the natural fear that is there to protect you and the fear that you're supposed to overcome because God called you. But I can assure you, anxiety over finances, thoughts of failure over what God's called you to do, uh, that God won't come through, all of those things, those are not fears that are of God. 
To fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That fear is good. But most fear that you entertain on a daily basis comes from the enemy. Mandy quoted somebody else and who was probably quoting somebody else back as far as time goes. Who knows who first came up with it, but said fear is false evidence appearing real. So when God says you can, we know, and the devil says you can't, and you begin to fear that you can't. He's presented you with false evidence, and you've begun to think it's real. We need to get that out of our heads. Eleazar realized God was his help because that's what his name was. That's what he was raised to be. That's what he was raised up to be. And when everybody else ran, his hand froze to the sword that is the Word of God. In James 1.21, leave, leave your finger in First Samuel, Second Samuel rather. In James 1, you see these words. I guess we'll start in uh, verse 19. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Humbly accept what planted in you? The Word, which can save you. So, what on earth does that have to do with Eleazar? Eleazar was in a battlefield where everybody else ran and he was standing there with the enemies all around him. His hand froze to the Word of God. Did it save him? Yeah, it saved him. How does that relate to us? If you're trying to get rid of moral filth, he said, if you're trying to get rid of the evil that is so prevalent that is around you, what do you do? You freeze to that Word of God that was planted in you. And you know what? At the end of the day, you'll be the only thing standing. You'll be standing before Jesus declared righteous. This is why Ephesians says, cling to the armor of God. The armor of God is just. It's not something that you, like in a video game, have to move a rock and you find. You know, It's not treasure that you have to go dig out and seek. The armor of God's plain. It's who you are in Christ. A belt of truth. Do you have to go find it? No. You be truthful. Why? Because the Word says be truthful. A shield of faith. Do you have to go acquire it? Do you have to strive for some level to get it? No. The Word says what faith is. It teaches you to have faith. You have it. And then you have a shield. You just have to put into practice the things that the Word teaches and then you are armored like a soldier. If Eleazar can stand in the natural... And and by the way, he wasn't standing alone. If you read this in First. Uh, Chronicles, you know the only person standing with him? David. Why? Because God is his help. And in this case, David is like Jesus to you. You're never really alone in a battle. If all of your friends retreat, there is one who stands with you. A friend that sticks closer than a brother, the Bible says. See, once you... And, and have you ever thought you were left alone? You ever felt like you were alone? You, or, or you showed up and you prayed, Lord, come meet with us? The Bible says He's with you always, even to the end of the age. I mean, either He's a liar or, or that's true. And if it's true, we don't have to pray for God to be with us. He's already with us. You have to pray for you to be with Him. <laughs> you have to pray for you to be... Oh, We said, well, where there are two or more gathered, He's there in your midst. That's not at all what that's talking about. That's, that's an enormous misquote. Two or more gathered, then He's in your midst. You know what it's talking about? Church judgment. If two of you with the Spirit of God agree that one is in sin, then that's, that's sufficient. Those two are just like Jesus was there pronouncing it. That's what that teaches. God's with you when you're alone. How else could He live in you? How else could His Spirit be in you? 
The Spirit's in me because uh, I'm here with David. The moment he gets more than 13.75 feet away, the Spirit leaves. It doesn't work that way. God's always with you. Point number one is no task is impossible because you sit in the counsel of God, just like Josheb. Point number two is you never retreat. You stick to the Word because God is your help. James says that the Word can save you. You know what Galatians says? I'll just tell you. Galatians 6.9 says, Don't give up. For at the proper time, if you don't give up, you will reap a reward. What would have happened if this guy had quit with ten Philistines still standing there? He wouldn't have been written in this book like this. He didn't give up till it was over. We can learn from this, saints. Every challenge that you face, you think, there's nothing that's impossible for me. I've heard from God. Every challenge that you face, you need to say, God's right here helping me. I'll cling to His Word until I'm the last one standing. Now, I told you there were three, so let's go back to 2 Samuel. Second Samuel 23, after Eleazar. Uh, after his hand grows to the sword, it says, The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. Next to him, next to him was Shammah, son of Agi, the Herorite. <laughs> Texas Agi, huh? When the Philistines banded together at the place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord brought about a great victory. The first guy, nothing's impossible, and his name means I sit in the council of God. The second guy refused to retreat, refused to give up. His hand grew frozen in the store, and his name meant God is my help. Shama's name has three meanings, and it takes all three to get this. Astonishment, desolation, and fame. See, what three friends to have, by the way? You've got one guy who sits on the council of God, so nothing's impossible. You've got a second guy who believes God's his help, so he never retreats under any circumstances. He just freezes his hand to the sword and continues. And the third guy, astonishment, desolation, and fame. What did he do? He defended a field of lentils. What are lentils? God, I hate this part. They're beans. But what is that? That's a primary source of food for His people. You want to be somebody in God's kingdom? Be willing to lay down your life to feed God's people. See, when God added to Paul after the split with Barnabas, Silas, and Timothy, one of the requirements for Timothy, not requirement by anybody but God, was that he be circumcised. Circumcised is totally unnecessary. We know that. He was willing to shed his blood that the gospel would advance, which was important because on their missionary journey, the first thing that happens is they get beat up, stripped naked, thrown in prison. Right? God requires for you to think more of the people that you're going to feed than of yourself. This guy Shama did that. So what about the meaning of his name, though? What about astonishment, desolation, and fame? Your life will cause astonishment to other people. They'll look at it and be amazed because you stand out when you care about others more than yourself. It'll cause desolation to the enemy because forceful men are advancing the kingdom. And in the end, it brings fame to God. By the way, in these three men, you remember John the Baptist? We see all of these things. In, in the one man, John the Baptist, you see that he sat in the council of God. You see that he saw God as his helper. And in the end, he loved not his life so much to shrink from death. Did his life cause astonishment to people? Did it cause desolation to the enemy? Did it cause fame to God? 
Jesus. Do you see all three of these things? Did he sit in the council of God? Yes. Did he view God as his helper? Yeah, he only did what he saw God doing. Uh, did his life, did he lay down his life? Of course. Did his life bring astonishment, desolation, and fame? Yeah. Astonishment to everybody who saw him. In fact, you know, there's only one time Jesus was astonished in the Bible. That's what the NIV says, the word he uses. It's when a, a centurion took him at his word. And that amazed Jesus because so few people did. Here's what we, we want to do. I'm going to read this last little bit here in just a minute, and I probably have maybe ten minutes. All of these are neat little word games, and they become almost trite if all you do is say, wow, I didn't know that those names meant that, and it's neat how they go together. You want to take these things as Christians and emulate them. The reason we point out John the Baptist, the reason we point out Jesus, is these are figureheads of the faith. You could do the same thing with Paul. You know, did, did Paul sit in the council of God? Oh, yeah. As every decision was determined. Was God uh, Paul's help? He said, yeah, my, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. That's how he helped him. He gave him grace. Did Paul's life cause astonishment, desolation, and fame? Astonishment? Yeah, people were amazed everywhere he went. Desolation? Even the demons knew Paul's name because he was taking their territory. Fame for Jesus? You wouldn't know about Jesus if there had not been a Paul. So these characteristics work in every Christian's life, but it's not enough to know them. You have to live them. You have to approach every task that comes. Guys, how, how often are you going to find yourself with a spear facing 800 men? How about in a field with a sword surrounded by the enemy and only David, your king, is standing there who you're one with, flesh and blood with? How often are you going to find yourself in a field of beans defending it? Almost never. I mean, that's probably not what's going to face you. So how do you glean from the Word of God truth for you? How is this the Word of life to you? You find what you can from each one of these situations to apply to your life. So that when God calls you to a job that seems impossible, you say, no, I sat in on the counsel of God. He told me to do this. So that when you're in that job and you're trying to bring the gospel to other people and you think, I just can't do it. I want to quit because nobody here likes me. Nobody here is receptive. I'm not seeing any progress. This pulls a vacuum. This is all of those bad things. You say, no, you know what? I'm just going to stick to the Word of God which says, be ready in season and out to give an answer to everyone who might ask you. I'm going to stick to the Word of God and refuse to retreat from this area because it's where God called me. And in that same scenario, when you are witnessing to people and they're, they're being fed and you see that the gospel is advancing, you'd be willing to do whatever it takes in your life. Quit worrying about how much sleep you get. Quit worrying about how much TV you get to watch. Quit worrying about your own needs and do whatever it takes to feed them. And you know what? Just like Shama, your life will bring astonishment to the people around you, desolation of the enemy, and fame to God. That's what this is teaching. In 2 Samuel 23, we're going to see a story now about the leader of all of them, David. At first, it looks like it's about the other guys, but it's about David. During harvest time, three of the thirty chief men came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped at the valley of Rephaim. At the time, David was in the stronghold and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that somebody would go get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty men broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem and carried it back to David. 
But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives and David would not drink it? So why on earth are we reading that and why is that important? It's where we're going to close today. When you're looking at Josheb, Eleazar, and Shammah, a guy whose name is sitting in the council of God, another one whose God is my helper, and the third who is astonishment, desolation, and fame. And you look at the things God called them to do and you say, okay, well, Eric, I learned from that and now I'm going to see no task is impossible. I'm never going to retreat. I'm going to stick with the Word of God and I'm going to be willing to lay down my life for others. You need to know this one thing that makes it all worth it. It doesn't matter what you do. You serve the kind of God who would never ask you who would never ask you to do something trivial just to please him. He would never ask you to do something that is not important. David didn't ask these guys to go get him in the water. In fact, he was so disgusted with the thought that they had to risk their lives to bring the water, something that he could have done without just a pleasantry, that he wouldn't even drink it because that would have been an insult to their lives. If the king, if David commissioned these guys to do something, it's because it was vitally important. And every task that God gives you, whether it's the house that you're supposed to live in, the job you're supposed to work at, the spouse you're supposed to have, the kids you're supposed to have, in the order you're supposed to have, whatever it is, it's because it's vitally important. There is no trivial thing in your life, no trivial thing in the kingdom of God. David wouldn't even drink the water. He wouldn't even drink it because they risked their lives to get it and he didn't command them to go. It wasn't punishment. It was respect. It was guys. You risked your life for this. How could I drink this water when you risked your life to go get it? And it's something that's just a pleasantry. He caused them to risk their life on a daily basis. You can read all about that as they're running from Saul and they're fighting in battles and working for the Philistines even at times. Whatever it is, they risk their lives on a daily basis. And that was honored. That was something that he commanded, something that was a condition of their serving him, that they did that. But when they went out to do it just to, just to be pleasing, he wouldn't even drink the water because he had such respect for their lives. What I'm trying to tell you is God won't tell you to move to Katy. He won't tell you to move to Sugarland just because it seems like a good idea to him. He's telling you because it's vitally important and he would never risk your life if it wasn't something that was vitally important. Just like David, we serve a king. In fact, look at David's words here. I've got about four minutes. And I don't say that like y'all are going to get up and walk out. I just figure an hour is enough. Look at the first words of David here. These are the last words of David in chapter 23. They're the first words David records in chapter 23, but the last words of his life. The oracle of the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man exalted by the Most High God. Got that? The oracle of the man exalted by the Most High God. So you could see how we could take this in shadow and type as Jesus. The man exalted by the Most High God. The man anointed by the God of Jacob, Israel's singer of songs. You know, when I think of David, I think of a warrior. When the Bible describes him, it describes him as a worshiper of God. Isn't that interesting? The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel stood by me. The one who rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. David prophesied just like we did. And you know what he said? 
He said the one that God anoints, the one who He causes to be king, is like the light on a cloudless morning. You know what Jesus is described as? The morning star. It's the first light that you see in the morning. The last light of the dark sky and the first light of the new sky. He was prophesying about Jesus and about His own life. The King that we serve cares about you. He cares about your life. He won't waste it like Saul would, like other people would. It's important. But because of that, you sit in on His counsel. You receive help from Him. Because of that, you do whatever it takes. You'll be willing to lay down your life because you know He wouldn't waste it. And you know what? He will make you to others like the first light in the morning. He'll make you like a, a cloudless, beautiful sky. You'll be refreshing to them just like He is to us. All of this goes right back to Ephesians. It says we're going to put off our old self. We're going to put on the new. This is the new self. So nothing is impossible. And we're going to quit there.